Welcome to the Beltline Church of Christ podcast. We're so glad you found us. Please take a second and hit the subscribe button so that you can be notified of these weekly podcasts. Most of all, we hope this podcast will help you take your next step with Jesus. If you want to know more about us, you can visit us at www.beltlinechurchofchrist.org. Here's today's lesson. Here, if you have your Bibles, you can be opening to Matthew chapter 3. As we continue our series of lessons looking at the life of Christ, uh, we are looking chronologically at the most influential life that's ever walked the face of the earth, the life of Jesus Christ. And today, we're going to be talking about the baptism of Jesus. Next week, we're going to be talking about the temptation of Jesus. But I want to say this up front, as all in the life of Christ, these two events are amazingly connected. And we'll show you uh, what that looks like next week and how they're connected next week. But I just really want to say, in order to do justice, we can't take them together, even though they really probably need to be taken together. uh, There's just so much here that we're going to separate them, but I want you to know how connected they are. Thank you for being here today. If you're watching online or if you're here in person, we are so glad uh, that you've chosen to be here at Beltline. And I want to begin by asking you to use your imagination this morning. I'm not going to ask you to close your eyes or anything like that, but I want you to use your imagination. Let's imagine for a second that all of us here, we are going to a huge concert hall packed to the brim with people like us, eager and excited music lovers. Can you get that picture in your head? Uh, We're going to a concert hall. We have our programs in hand, and we are waiting for the thunderous music to begin. And we know what it's supposed to sound like. We come eagerly expecting the music to sound a certain way. We know that this concert's going to be a concert of music for battle, for victory. It's going to be thunder and lightning and explosions of wonderful, wonderful noise. The concert manager comes onto the stage, and he declares in ringing tones that the famous musician that we've all been waiting for has arrived. He gets us all on our feet to welcome with an ovation the man who is going to fulfill all of our musical expectations for the evening. And as we stand there eagerly, a small figure comes on the stage. He doesn't look at all like what we expected. And he's carrying not a conductor's baton to bring the orchestra to life, but instead he's, he's carrying a small flute. And as we watch, shocked into silence, he plays gently and he plays softly, a tune quite different from what we imagined. But as we listen, we, we start to hear familiar themes that are played in a brand new way. And that the music that he plays, it's haunting and it's, and it's fragile and it's winging its way into our own imaginations and hopes and, and actually transforming them without us even knowing it. And as, as, as the, the concert reaches a close, as though at a signal, the orchestra responds with a new version of the music that we had been expecting all along. John the Baptist, who we talked about last week, is the concert manager. He's the one in our story who's whipping us into excitement about the soloist who is going to appear. He says, he's coming. He's coming. He's more powerful than me. And he will give you wind and fire, not just water. He will clear out the mess. He will clean up God's farm so that the only thing that's left is the good wheat. And we are on our feet 
We are expecting a great leader, perhaps the living God himself, to sweep into the hall with a great explosion, with a blaze of light and color, and transform everything in a single blow. But instead, we get Jesus. You see, the Jesus we've met so far in our study is nothing more than a baby with a price on his head. He is a Jesus who comes and stands humbly before John asking for baptism. He's a Jesus who, according to the prophecy of Isaiah 53-2, had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. We get a Jesus who seems to be identifying not with a God who sweeps all before him in judgment, but instead with a man who's identifying with the people who themselves are facing the judgment and needing to repent. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, here's what it says. I baptize you, John speaking with water, for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with an unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. You come to me? It seems that John is, is, is horrified that Jesus would come asking for baptism from him. In fact, the text says John tries to stop him. John tries to prevent him. And this is a sidebar, uh, but, but I just want to ask you this question. How many times do we try to prevent Jesus from accomplishing what he wants to accomplish? How many times, because we don't think it's supposed to look that way, do we say, nope, sorry Jesus, we don't want you to do that. We can't have you do that. John seems to have known that Jesus was the one he was waiting for, but his question is, why? Why would Jesus come to him for baptism? I mean, what about verse 12? What about the agenda, right? What happened to the wind and fire? What happened to the clearing out of God's farm? Surely, if anything, John needs to be baptized by Jesus. Now, this won't be the last time John completely misunderstands what Jesus is doing or what Jesus is about. But let's read Jesus' response in Matthew chapter 3, verse 15. Here's what it says. But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus' response to John's question tells us something vital about the whole gospel story that's going to unfold before our very surprised eyes. Yes, Jesus is coming to fulfill God's plan. Yes, Jesus is coming to fulfill the promises that God made ages ago and has never forgotten. Yes, these are the promises which are going to blow God's wind, God's spirit through the world, which will bring God's fire of judgment on evil wherever it occurs, and it will bring God's rescue to repentant people once and for all from every kind of exile they've ever been in. But Jesus' response shows us how he's going to do it. You see, John says, Jesus, you're here and I'm here. 
You're high and I'm low. You should be baptizing me, not me baptizing you. And Jesus comes to John and he says, listen, if we're going to accomplish what God wants us to accomplish, this switch has to happen. This switch has to happen. And he says three things. He says, number one, I humbly have to identify myself with God's people. That's what he's doing. John, he says, no, you're here and I'm here. And he says, no, if God's judgment, if God's power, if God's plan is going to be fulfilled, those things have to flip. I've got to identify with you. Number two, he says, I've got to take your place. I've got to share your repentance. And ultimately, number three, I've got to die your death. I gotta live your life and I gotta die your death. And I can see John as Jesus is doing all of this, thinking, what good will this do? How is this, how is this gonna bring about the results that John wanted? How is this gonna bring about the longing of Israel? <laughs> and you wanna know Matthew's answer? Keep reading. <laughs> Keep reading. And that's what we're gonna do in this series of lessons. But in Jesus' answer, we can already glimpse what the answer will be because when Jesus comes out of the water, man, there's so many amazing things that happen. Think back with me to Egypt and the Exodus. Remember, Israel comes through the waters of the Red Sea. They are given the law on Mount Sinai, confirming their status as God's people, as God's firstborn. And here Jesus comes up out of the waters of baptism. He receives God's spirit, God's wind, right? God's breath, he gets it in a new way, declaring him to be God's son. Jesus is Israel in person. And this dove, which for a moment embodies and symbolizes the Holy Spirit, indicates that the coming judgment will not be achieved the way everyone thought it would. It's not going to be achieved through war. It's not going to be achieved through some vindictive spirit. No, the way Jesus is going to bring about God's judgment is going to be by the making of peace. Judgment itself will be judged by the Spirit of God. And just as Jesus will take the judgment upon himself and make an end of it. Now, if you go over to Luke's account of the baptism of Jesus, one of the things that we see, Luke's account frames the baptism with prayer. Jesus is praying before he's baptized, and then he's praying in the wilderness as he's, as he's tempted. And I think there's a reason for that, and I think there's an important lesson for us in that. And here's the lesson. If the Son communes with God through prayer as he pursues his direction in life, how much more should we? And I just want to say this. This really isn't a part of this, but I think it's important to say, how many of you really pray? I just have this gut feeling that there's not a whole lot of praying going on anymore unless there's a disaster or something horrible happen in our life or unless we really, really, really want something. I, I hope I'm completely off base in that. But it just seems to me that if Jesus had to frame his whole life with prayer, then we have to do the same. Regular time in prayer, man, it is our lifeline in our relationship with God. I mean, not praying is like trying to be married without talking to your spouse. It's impossible. It's impossible to be on the same page without that communication. And so Scripture urges us again and again and again, pray. Pray without ceasing. And if, if our world has ever needed God to intervene, isn't it now? And there's so much to say here, but let me just say this. 
What this shows me as well, this, this Matthew 3, this events of Jesus' baptism, it shows me Jesus is not just a good man. He's not just a good prophet. He is so much more. And the gospel writers want us to know that he is bigger and he's higher than even what we're thinking right now. He is the son of God. He is prophet. He is priest. He is king. And the significance of this should not be missed. He's not one among many. No, the message of Jesus is unique. The road to the Father comes through him and only him. Only him. And God gives Jesus his divine approval here in Matthew 3, doesn't he? You are my son. I love you. I'm pleased with you. And the implication for us is we got to listen to him, we got to follow him, and we got to obey him. Paul, obsessed with his anti-Christian crusade, Saul never expected Jesus appears to him on the Damascus road, was he? Did he? Ananias was surprised by his commission to lay hands on a sightless Saul, welcoming him into the community of believers. And that radical change in Saul of Tarsus was certainly never expected by those who had heard of him or had experienced his tirade against Christianity, did they? But our God is a God of surprises. He likes surprises, and he does the unexpected in our life as well as the expected in our life. And there's a verse, this is going to take us away from Jesus' life for a second, uh, but there's this verse in Acts chapter 11, verse 17. Even after Jesus walked the earth and returned to the Father, the surprises just kept coming, didn't they? Samaritans and Jews, once enemies, now worship Jesus as the king. And then in Acts 10... The greatest surprise of all, the Gentiles, the pagans are also included in the fellowship of the saints. And in Acts 11, Paul, as Peter tells the story of what happened, he says, who in the world was I that I could stand in God's way? Right? What's he saying? Our God is a God of surprise. I never expected this. I didn't even want it. But who am I to stand in God's way? He's a God of surprises. And if you have shut yourself off to the possibility of Jesus doing new, amazing, faith-building things in your life, even today, you have put yourself in the wrong place. Because he is a God of surprises. The surprises haven't ceased. They haven't gone away. My fear is we've just stopped looking for them. We've just stopped expecting them. We have wrongly bought the lie that God is finished working out his will in this world. We've been listening for the wrong music. And we believe that God will work only in the way that we think he should work. God forbid. God forbid that that be what we think or believe. I want you to remember this. If you take nothing else from the lesson today, take this. Jesus doesn't come to fulfill your plans. He comes to fulfill God's plans. Jesus comes to fulfill God's plans, not yours. Even his prophets, even his apostles misunderstand what he's up to. To carry our opening illustration just a little bit further, he's not always going to play the music we expect, but if we will learn to listen carefully to what he says and watch carefully what he does, what we will find is our deepest longings and that hunger beneath the surface excitement, man, it's going to be richly met And at the same time, those who in repentance and faith 
follow Jesus through baptism and along the road that he will now lead us, we will find, if we listen, that exact same voice that said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased speaking to us as well. As we learn to put aside our own plans and submit to his, we may be granted moments of vision, glimpses of his greater reality, and at the center of that sudden sight, we will find a loving father affirming us as his children and equipping us just like he did Jesus, equipping us with his spirit so that our lives may be swept clean and made ready for use. Think about that. God wants to affirm you. He wants to equip you. And he wants to use you, just like he did Jesus. And so the question that we have to wrestle with this morning is simply this. Do you want to be used by God? Do you want to be used by God? You see, we too, like John the Baptist, are called to prepare the way for Jesus to come into the lives of the people around us who don't know him and who have not yet decided to follow him, God has placed you and I where we are for a purpose. And there are people around you who need the Lord. Do you want to be used by God? Or are you just after what he offers? Blessings, eternal life, favor. See, those aren't the goal. Those are the side benefits of following Jesus. We said last week that John the Baptist is not a moral reformer. He is a herald of the King of Kings. And he is heralding that the King has arrived. The time for that new exodus that we mentioned last week is here. And as we think about that new exodus, I think, isn't it interesting, and I don't think it's an accident, by the way, that John is baptizing in the Jordan River, the very place where the first exodus reached its goal and the people received their inheritance. There's no accident there. And Jesus joins the crowds, and as he is baptized, as we read in Matthew 3, the voice of God joining earth, heaven and earth joining in that verse, and that shows us this royal work of the Messiah who will rule the nation from his throne in Jerusalem and the servants who will bring God's justice to the nation through his obedient suffering. You see, all the signs are this. As we look through Scripture, as you think about different scholars saying different things, all the signs are that Jesus understood that his baptism was the moment when he was anointed. Like Israel's kings of old, Israel's God was acting through him, in him, as him. Jesus understood that this was the moment. His baptism gave him the moment. It gave him the platform to launch his kingdom movement through which the saving plan of the world would be accomplished. I I love how the Holy Spirit works things together. As as Mark talks about Isaiah 53, as Blake talks about Isaiah 50, I I want some themes that the Israelites believed but never put together until Jesus. This is really, really important. And this is going to be some deep waters that we need to wade through, but stay with me because there are three themes here, and this will help you understand why the Jews continue to reject Jesus today. Here's the first theme that we know about. The first theme is this. The people believed that the Messiah would be a royal figure who would rule and bring God's justice to the world and who would smash the pagans with the rod of iron. This is Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? Why do the people plot vain things? They set themselves up against God's anointed, right? God's son, right? 
So this is the first theme. They believe that the Messiah would be a royal figure. But here's the problem, the second theme. The people also believed in a suffering servant. They believed in a servant who would suffer and die, and that the servant's people would experience much of the same thing. And number three, the people believed that God himself would return. By the way, that's Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 52. And then the people believed that God himself would return to Jerusalem. Israel's God would come to dwell with his people. The devout Jews believed it. So there's your three themes. The Messiah would be a royal figure. They believed in a suffering servant. And they believed that God himself was coming back. But here's the problem. Up to this point, these three themes were always separate. And what Jesus comes is playing a completely different music than they ever expected. And he joins all three themes in himself. He's playing a song they never imagined. It wasn't supposed to sound like this in their minds. Jews who had studied Isaiah 53 thought that the suffering servant was either a suffering figure but not a Messiah. Or if they thought the suffering servant was a Messiah, they thought that the Messiah was going to be the one who was inflicting the suffering. And yet Jesus comes along and he joins these three themes together. The music Jesus plays is so much different than what they expected. And when he submitted to John's baptism, expressing the repentance necessary before the great coming restoration and symbolically reenacting the crossing of the Jordan and entry into the promised land, he identified with his people in their humiliation and in their repentance and in their longing for God's kingdom. And this double meaning of sorrow for sin and the launching of the kingdom point directly to the great meaning of the voice from heaven and the royal work are fused together in Jesus and God himself in Jesus has returned turn to Jerusalem. All three themes wrapped up in Jesus. Wow. That is what he had to do. And this, this was the time he had to do it. He became in a new and deeper way what he already was. Think of it this way. You know, as the king's firstborn son, born to rule after his father, that king is still going to be anointed for the task when the time came, right? Well, the same is true with Jesus. This is Jesus' anointing moment. He's going to be crowned king on the cross, but this is his anointing moment. And it is this newly shaped vision that, as we will see next week, will be tested in the wilderness, in the desert. Because immediately after this event, the Spirit himself will lead Jesus into the desert to be tempted by the devil. And the reason that happens is so many reasons why. But the question is, what sort of Messiah is he going to be? And it's this victory in the wilderness that shows this anointing is real. It's not a fantasy. Just like David's victory over Goliath showed that his anointing was real, this victory will point forward to the task that now must be accomplished, and they will help us under tempts Jesus. But that's next week. That's next week. But it all takes me back to the question do you want to be used by God? Do you want to be used? Don't miss the boat. New creation has arrived in Jesus. And he wants you to be a part of it. 
And the question is, will you? See, this isn't just about going to church. It's about being the church. It's about letting God surprise us again and again and again. It's about listening for his music instead of saying, it's not supposed to sound like that. No, it's about his plans, not ours. So are you willing to lay your plans down and submit to his? Are you willing to lay your plans down and submit to his? Faith says, I'm going to go his way instead of my own. That's what baptism is. It's saying, I, I'm surrendering to his plans, not mine. I'm following his will, not mine. And in the process, he takes away our sins and applies his grace and mercy to our life. And if you're here and you've never done that, why would you not? Why would you not draw that line in the sand and say, this is, this is my direction from here on. I am walking with Jesus, and I'm going to have my baptism as the moment when all of this changed for me. When I went all in. When Jesus cleansed me and I went all in. Or maybe uh, you, say, you see yourself today and you're thinking, you know, he's right. I, I, I haven't really allowed God to use me. I've been been thinking it's supposed to sound this way, and when it didn't, I didn't know what to do. Well, then today, make the decision to say, God's plan's not mine. Surprise me, God. Use me. Welcome to the Beltline Church of Christ podcast. We're so glad you found us. Please take a second and hit the subscribe button so that you can be notified of these weekly podcasts. Most of all, we hope this podcast will help you take your next step with Jesus. If you want to know more about us, you can visit us at www.beltlinechurchofchrist.org. Here's today's lesson.